scripture for this evening. We also hope to consider from the Heidelberg Catechism, question 43, where we are asked what further, or I should say where, where we ask the question to our instructor here, what further benefit do we receive from Christ's sacrifice and death on the cross? And the answer given is by his power. Our old man is crucified, put to death, and buried with him, so that the evil desires of the flesh may no longer rule us, but that instead we may offer ourselves as a sacrifice of thanksgiving to him. Our catechism this evening, my friends, asks us about a further benefit. What further benefit do we receive from Christ's sacrifice and death on the cross. Again, our catechism has stepped away briefly from the Apostles' Creed to consider a, another question. You might say a question that arises. Last week, you'll remember the question that arose was, why then do we have to die? Why do believers have to die if Christ has died for them and taken that punishment off of them? Well, the question that is given us today is, is there a further benefit do we re that we receive from Christ's sacrifice and death? And the answer given is as is written there. When we think of further benefit, we want to first ask ourselves, well, what was the initial benefit that we received from Christ's death? Well, the initial benefit that we received from Christ's death is the cancellation of our guilt. You remember the curse is taken off us. The punishment is removed. These are the things that pertain to our justification so the Sunday school and catechism students are probably familiar with these words, and certainly you are familiar with these words of justification. The further benefit that the catechism is going to explain for us this evening is that the death of Christ also gives us a benefit as it pertains to our sanctification. Now, I put that little chart there because it's important that we be able to distinguish between these two doctrines of justification and sanctification. Justification resolves our guilt problem, our guilt problem. Let me start by saying that when a person sins, again, let me back up a little bit here. When a person sins, two things happen to that person. Two things happen to that person. In the first place, the person brings guilt upon himself, right? He brings guilt upon himself. He's now guilty, which means he's now liable to punishment. In the courtroom, the sentence would go out guilty. And guilt implies a need for punishment. So there is guilt. But there's also something that happens, my friends, when a person sins to his own character. Theologians have often called this pollution or corruption. Again, just they're trying to find a word that says that something takes place within us, within our own soul, within our character. When we sin, we mess up our character. You know, that was always uh, interesting uh, for those of you who who study the Civil War and the old issue of slavery in this country. And I think it was uh, Booker T. Washington, right, the great, uh, the great uh, college president uh, in, the, in the day at the Tuskegee Institute, where he, he said that slavery hurt the owners as much as it hurt the slaves. That's something for him to say. He was once a slave himself. But I think he's articulating that principle, isn't it? That when we sin, we mess up. We, we pervert and corrupt our own character. Our own soul becomes twisted. You know that psychologically, 
that when we sin, sin often doesn't remain on its own, right? But sin develops into habits and habits become addictions, right? And you know that the wreck people make of their lives by committing sin and by committing it repeatedly. Well, these are, what the, these are the terms that theologians have used, that there's the guilt, right? It's something that is outside of us in the courtroom of God that makes us liable to punishment. And there's also this pollution, this, this, this uh, twisting and perverting of our own character, our own soul. And now God in his mercy provides a salvation that resolves both of those issues. And so in the, in the table that I gave you there, justification resolves our guilt problem. Right? Justification takes place in the courtroom of God when by the substitution of Christ, the innocent for the guilty, the guilty for the innocent, we are declared not guilty. That is a legal issue that takes place in God's courtroom. Well, now sanctification resolves our pollution problem. Sanctification goes to work on our character. The perversion that took place in our soul when we sinned, now God begins to fix that. He begins to resolve that. So I said in the second place that justification has its effect in God's courtroom. Sanctification has its effect on our character. Justification takes place outside of us in God's courtroom. Sanctification takes place within us. I might just add something here. Justification is primarily by the work of Christ for us. Sanctification is primarily by the Holy Spirit within us. And justification is a one-time event. My friends, the moment you believe the gospel for the first time, you are immediately joined to Jesus Christ and justified, declared not guilty. But sanctification begins, right? It begins with that baptism of the Holy Spirit by which we are joined to Jesus Christ that we spoke of this morning, but it progressively works its way out. We are not sanctified in a moment. It takes place progressively. It is a lifelong process. Now, the further benefit that our catechism is speaking is saying that the benefit we receive from the death of Christ as it pertains to our justification is wonderful. We praise God for that. But now the instructor is going to go on and say there is a further benefit. There is a further benefit. And that is the death of Christ also has something to say. It also has its effect upon our sanctification. That daily process whereby the Spirit of God is renewing us within. And, of course, we are part of that work, aren't we? We join with the Spirit of God, and we, and we also have our work to do. Again, we saw that in Psalm 119 already, where David prays for the sanctifying work of God, but where he also resolves to place himself under the Word of God and other things that he resolves to do in the life of sanctification. So we distinguish between these two, justification and sanctification, and primarily the death of Christ has its effect upon our justification. But now the catechism is going to go on and say it has a further benefit. It says something also to the life of sanctification. Now it's wonderful that the catechism speaks this way to us, and it gives us this answer, right? By his power, that is by the power of Jesus, our old man is crucified, put to death, and buried with him, so that the evil desires of the flesh may no longer rule us, you can see this is sanctification language, isn't it? The evil desires of the flesh, right? That's sanctification language. May no longer rule us, but that instead we may offer ourselves as a sacrifice of thanksgiving to him. So this is the benefit that the catechism is giving us. Now, uh, previously, 
the catechism had asked us if there was anything special or anything noteworthy in the fact that Jesus was crucified, that he died uh, by crucifixion. Is it significant that he was crucified instead of dying some other way? And the answer given us there was, yes, this death convinces me that he shouldered the curse which lay on me, since death by crucifixion was accursed by God. And in that sermon, I also hinted at the fact, right, that this curse that has come down upon us, that's, a, that's justification language, isn't it? Right? That curse that comes down upon us also relates to uh, our own, that, that when Jesus was crucified and took our curse, right, that Paul also uses that crucifixion language speaking about the old man, that sin nature that dwells within us, that that too was crucified. And then at that point, I uh, pointed out that the catechism was going to say more about that, and that's where we are tonight. This is that further benefit that we receive from Christ's sacrifice and death on the cross. Well, so much for the catechism then. What does the scripture say about this? Again, in all these sermons, right, we don't want to just end in the catechism. We want to know, is the catechism giving us something that scripture itself teaches us? Well, I hope to show that to you from Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. If you would turn there, please, in your Bibles and follow me here in Romans chapter 6 and verse 1. Paul begins with this challenge. Now, it's not a challenge that Paul is giving. It's a challenge that Paul is receiving. Because having in the previous chapters of Romans 1 through 5, Paul has talked about our justification. Again, that's so important to keep those two distinguished. Justification. In Romans 1 through 5, Paul has been focusing on that doctrine of justification. And my friends, how many of us don't think the same, uh, the same way that when we know that our works, that our good works, our, all the good things that we do in life, that they have nothing to say about how we are right or how we become right with God. They play no role in that. That is all in Jesus. It's only the good works that Jesus did that play any role in our justification. Now, when I say that language, how many of you don't kind of think... That seems dangerous, Pastor, to talk that way. Because why? People would just say, then, our good works don't matter at all. Well, what's the point in, in, in getting up on Monday morning and trying hard to fight against sin and, and to live a, a life of righteousness and to pursue holiness, personal holiness of life and, 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 and our walk with God day by day? It seems a little, a little dangerous to talk that way. And that's kind of the spirit that, that is, you find in this objection, right? Because Paul is saying, are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? The more sin, the more grace. Right? And we know that. When we hear about a, a person who's been lost in sin, a person who's committed terrible acts of wickedness, but then he's powerfully converted by God, we glorify the grace of God in the life of that person. And it, and it can come into our minds, oh, the greater the sinner the greater God's grace is glorified. So we should sin all the more, so that grace can be all the more increased. But you know that Paul revolts against that, right? He's, he's repulsed by that idea. May it never be, right? In the old King James, it says, God forbid. And then he gives this truth. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? And that's actually the text this evening. 
How shall we who died to sin still live in it? So there's the truth then that we want to consider. And you'll notice that it very closely aligns with our catechism, right? By, our, by his power, our old man is crucified, put to death, and buried. Paul says, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? Now, my friends, I want you to notice who died to sin. Notice it does not say those who are dying to sin. This is an event. This is something that happened in the life of God's children. Paul says, we died to sin. Somewhere in our past history, there was a moment when we died to sin. He's not talking about a process here. He's talking about we died to sin. Now, what is that? That's what I put on the outline there. The challenge, I think that's clear. Paul's answer, we died to sin. We are dead to sin. Now, what is that? What is he talking about when he says dead to sin? Here's, it's very interesting, my friends, that in the New Testament, so many years ago, they had an expression that we continue to use today, right? We, we, we continue to say today, well, I, I really hope that you don't have this in your life, but we do know what this expression means. If I say, I'm dead to you, right? Or you're dead to me. We know very well what that means, right? That means I will have nothing to do with you. Do not call me. Do not text me. Do not email me. I do not want to hear from you or see you ever again. You are dead to me. Just as with one of our loved ones dies, we have no interaction with that person again. So in our relationships, we have this dreadful thing, right, of saying, that person is dead to me, or I'm dead to that person. By the way, just a little parenthesis here in the sermon. If you have a relationship like that with somebody, and you're the reason why you're dead to that person, or they're dead to you, I can almost guarantee you that you are in sin. I'll just let that lay, okay? And I'll continue with the sermon. But I just want to say that. That is a very serious thing in our relationships with our fellow man, to be dead to another person. But at any rate, back to the, to the message here. What? Paul is explaining what does it mean to be dead to sin. Dead to sin. Well, if you look down to verse 7, you can see that Paul gives a little illustration there. Jump with me down to verse 7. For he says, For he who has died is freed from sin. Now this is just a, a truth that Paul is using to illustrate this idea of being dead to anything. Because he says, For he who has died, and, and I believe that's just referring to physical death, a person who's, who's physically died, is freed from sin. In other words, they, it's not possible for them to sin anymore. They can't sin, right? They're dead. A person who has, is, is, has died, sin is no longer even a possibility for them. And I think that's how Paul wants us to understand what it means to be dead to sin. That just as if you were dead to another person, to be dead to sin means you have no interaction with it anymore. You have nothing to do with it. You don't talk to sin. Sin doesn't talk to you. You don't email it or text it or call it. You have nothing to do with it. There is a divorce there. There is a, a break. There is an irreversible separation, says Paul, between you and sin. And just as you don't have any more interactions with a person who has physically died, so Paul is saying that in the life of a believer, there has come this time 
when this divorce, this break has happened with sin. And again, Paul likes to personify sin. He likes to speak about sin as if it's a person. And you see that here, don't you? That you're now dead to sin. You're completely insensitive to it. And you have no interactions with it anymore. You have died to sin. Now, naturally, we want to know, when did that happen? When were we? When did we die to sin? When did that relationship that we have with sin irreversibly break? Well, I come to Romans 6 and verse 3. Romans 6 and verse 3, where Paul says, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? And he continues the same language in verse 4. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Now, my friends, I don't plan these things. But in the providence of God, uh, the exact thing that we talked about this morning is what Paul's referencing here. And he says, when did, when did this happen? That we, were, uh, that we died to sin? Well, Paul says it happened when you were baptized. Now, not when you were baptized with water. Paul would never say that. Paul would never say that when you were baptized with water, you were joined to Jesus Christ in his death and in his resurrection. No, Paul's talking about that baptism of the Holy Spirit that we spoke about this morning. He's talking about a spirit baptism, which, of course, uh, our baptism represents to us, the water baptism, but Paul would never say that water baptism, right? Uh, or do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ? No. In fact, I just want to read that verse to you again from 1 Corinthians because it's so critical that we understand that verse and that we, uh, that we have that teaching firmly in our minds. What is it that unites us to Jesus Christ? In 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13, Paul has said, For with one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. The spirit of God was poured out upon us, says Paul. And by that baptism, we were joined into one body with, with Christ. We were joined to Christ and we were joined to each other. Slave, free, male, female, that doesn't matter anymore. All of us are bound together in one body by this baptism with the Holy Spirit. Now, undoubtedly, Paul has in his mind uh, the, the idea of, you know, I, I think that uh, what is represented to us in baptism probably was in the back of Paul's mind here too, right? But still the baptism that he's thinking of here is clearly the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That spirit baptism into Christ, that's what brings us into union with Christ. And our water baptism is meant to represent that. So when did this happen? Well, it happened when you were baptized. And that spirit baptism brought you into a union with Christ. That brings me then to the result. So what happened? You are dead to sin, says Paul. When did that happen? When you were baptized with the Holy Spirit. And now in verse 5, we have the result. In verse 5, we have the result. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. And here's Paul saying that, yes, uh, you know, you weren't physically crucified like Jesus was, right? But still, when you were baptized with the Holy Spirit, you were brought into a union, a powerful, a saving union with Jesus Christ. 
Now, if that's true, that you were brought into a union with Christ, then we ask ourselves, did Christ die? Yes, he did. Well, says Paul, then you died with him. You died with him. And furthermore, you were buried. You were buried. And Christ rose from the dead. So have you risen from the dead. But now Paul applies this truth not to our guilt, not to the curse that was upon us, which Christ took away by dying in our place, but he applies it to the truth of sanctification. So if you look in verse 3, he says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death, right? If we've been brought into that union with Christ, then we've been brought into union with his death. And in verse 4, therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death. United to Jesus in his death. United to Jesus in his burial. So that, and here's the glorious truth, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk. Now do you hear that language? Walk. That's sanctification language. Walk in newness of life. Now he's not talking about justification anymore, is he? Now he's talking about sanctification. He's talking about walking in a newness of life. And Paul says, Jesus died on the cross. Do you see him there? Jesus dying on the cross. He was nailed there. And now Paul says, your old man, your sin nature was nailed there with him. That violent, cruel death on the cross. And then Jesus died on the cross. And Paul says, your old man died on the cross. That sin nature that causes you so much grief and trouble. It died there on the cross. And the body of Jesus was taken down and was put in a grave and a stone was put in the front of it. Never to hear from that old sin nature again. That old way of life in which you lived, says Paul, which was dominated and ruled by sin. It's been executed, killed, capital punishment on the cross and put in a grave. But that's not the end of the story. Again, if you're united to Christ in his death, why then, Paul says, you're also united to him in his resurrection. And when that grave burst open, well, it didn't burst open, did it? But Christ burst out of that grave. The grave didn't need to open anymore. Christ burst out of that grave. He came out of that grave, a new person. And now Paul says, no, not that old nature, that old sin nature. That's dead in the grave, never to be heard of again. But you come out of that grave, a new person. You come out of that grave, a new person, filled with the Holy Spirit, ready to walk in newness of life. In verse 5, right? For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Right? You can't have one, says Paul, without the other. Knowing this, that our old self, and my friends, read into that word old self, all that old way of life. And some of us know that, right? Some of us had a, a we came out of a, a desperately wicked and sinful life. And you can remember those days. Well, Paul says that old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with. Dead and buried so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Just like a person who has died has, has, doesn't sin anymore, right? They can't sin anymore. Well, Paul says in the same way, when our old man and sin nature was crucified on the cross, dead and buried, it no longer has anything to say to us anymore. We are dead to it. We are dead to it. And verse 8, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. 
knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, my friends, this teaches us very clearly that when we, when, we were, uh, when we were regenerated by the Spirit of God, that's probably language we're more familiar with, but we could also use the language we had this morning. When we were baptized with the Holy Spirit, when we first were saved, God brought us into a, 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 into a new place, if I could say it that way. You know, when, when somebody is married here, right, they walk up that aisle in one place, right? They're single. But when they are joined here and they say their vows and they turn around and they walk out of this church, their status, their position, their place has changed completely. Right? They came in single. They leave married. And in the same way, if anybody has ever immigrated to a different country, right? right? If, you, if you come from a country as a Dutch citizen and you come into this nation and you do all the process for citizenship, you become an American citizen. Citizen. There's now a time and a place there, isn't there, where you went from this citizenship to a new citizenship. Your place has changed. And what Paul is teaching here is that our place has changed. There is a change of position. That's the uh, under conclusions there. That's my first, my first one there. A change of position. It's like citizenship. And I, I, I put it that way, my friends, because I want you to see that that at the very beginning of our life, when God, when we believe in Christ and when we are justified by faith and our guilt is removed, that all pertains to our justification. We praise God for that. But the catechism and Paul is now teaching us of a further benefit as it pertains to our sanctification and that God has changed our relationship to sin. And this is my second, the second uh, item there in that list. God has, has given us an irreversible break with sin. A divorce, you might say. Our old self is crucified and buried. And we are now dead to sin. I can't help but think in Genesis 3. Remember where God said, I will put enmity between the seed of the woman and between the seed of the serpent. You might say that prophecy, my friends, is fulfilled every time a person is baptized with the Spirit of God. And God puts enmity between him and sin. In fact, that might even be putting it... Uh, uh, too weakly, because Paul prefers the, the picture of that that old nature was crucified with Christ and put away in the grave. And we come out of that grave a new person. Now, my friends, in the third place there, that third item there, this is an established reality in the life of every believer. Notice that is, this is not something we are to pray for. This is not something we are to work for. But it's something that is already an established reality. Do you remember what I read in verse 11? Paul says, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Notice Paul doesn't say, and again, some of this kind of pertains to what we talked about with the uh, assemblies of God and the Pentecostals, right? Paul does not say, pray for this to happen in your life. Oh, may this happen in you so that you can overcome sin in your life. No, Paul is saying this is an established reality for every believer. For every believer, sin has been crucified, or their old sin nature has been crucified, and their relationship with sin, there is an irreversible break there that God has brought in their life. And this is an established reality. 
You are not to pray for it. We are not to work for it, but we are to consider it as already done. Well, that brings me, that brings me to my, my application here, my friends. What a benefit it has been over the last, really almost two months now, as we went step by step through what Christ has done in our place to take away our guilt, to take away the curse. He died in our place. He, he endured the penalty prescribed by the covenant of works. And we talked at length about that. And we rejoice in that, don't we? But now we can rejoice even further. We get this further benefit that God says he will break. And not, not that he will, but that he has broken our relationship to sin. He has put enmity between us and that serpent. He has crucified our sin and buried it in a grave, never to hear from it again. And my friends, Paul glories in this reality. Let me read to you, especially in the book of Galatians, he repeatedly glories in this reality of being dead to sin. If you want to follow along, you can see in Galatians 2 verse 20. Otherwise, you can just listen to me read these verses. I have been crucified with Christ, says Paul, and it is no longer I who live. Again, the I there is that sinful self that's been dead and buried in the grave. But Christ lives in me. The, the resurrection life of Christ. Christ came out of the grave. Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Galatians 2 verse 20. Then Galatians 5 verse 24. We see similar language. Paul talking now those, this is Galatians 5 and verse 24. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Well, there you see, those who belong to Jesus Christ, who've been brought by the baptism with the Holy Spirit into a union with Christ, they have crucified the flesh. How? Not that they did it by their own self-discipline, Right? No, they've crucified the flesh by, having, by being joined to Christ and having their sinful self nailed to the cross. And Galatians 6 and verse 14. Galatians 6 and verse 14. But may it never be, says Paul, that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Notice how Paul says that his love for the world and everything that it contains has been crucified, has been cut off. Well, I come then to my second application, my friends, because, again, as with any truth in the Word of God, these things are often abused. These things are often uh, twisted. I put this quote on the outline by a Mr. Trumbull, who I do not necessarily know who that is. I believe he's one of the uh, Plymouth brethren. But at any rate, he writes here. And read this with me, if you're able to, please. Just remember this, he writes. Any victory over the power of any sin whatsoever in your life that you have to get by working for it is counterfeit. Any victory that you have to get by trying for it is counterfeit. If you have to work for your victory, it is not the real thing. It is not the thing that God offers you. On the train this afternoon, I was reading a letter from a woman who was at this convention. And she said, I am trying to live the victorious life. And so I did so and so under certain circumstances. 
and that's that woman speaking. She did various things to try to live the victorious life. Uh, Mr. Trumbull continues, that Christian friend may be in this audience tonight, but if she is, I cannot refrain from saying that as long as she keeps on trying to live the victorious life, she won't live it. If any of you are making the mistake of trying to live the victorious life, you are cheating yourself out of it. For the victory you get by trying for it is a counterfeit victory. You must substitute another word, not try, but trust. And you cannot try and trust at the same time. Trying is what we do. Trusting is what we let the Lord do. Well, at this point of the sermon, I almost want to ask you to respond to that. What do you think of that quote? In one sense, when we read something like that, we find much that is to be celebrated there, right? I mean, that's what we've been learning, right? That there's a power in the Christian life that is not our own. And that if we go it, our, uh, go it alone, right? If we try to live the Christian life on our own resources, if we try to gain the victory over our sin, right? By dotting every I and by crossing every T, right? Some of you will remember the list that Benjamin Franklin used to make, right? Of all the times he, he disobeyed uh, uh, the law of God and all the times he obeyed it and he kept careful tally of all the sins that he committed. In that sense, the author certainly is, is teaching us, right? That we need not just to try, but to trust, to pray, to ask the Spirit of God to enable us. But my friends, what we must take vigorous disagreement with this quote is that the author puts trusting in opposition to trying. And that is a terrible mistake. In fact, let me just read to you from our text. Notice that after all what Paul has said in Romans 6, 1 through 11, about being dead to sin, about dying with Christ, about rising with Christ. Now read verse 12 with me. Romans 6 and verse 12, Therefore, says Paul, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Notice that Paul comes to the conclusion that yes, we should trust, that yes, we should be people of prayer, that yes, we should pray that God would give us this, this uh, filling of the Spirit, that he would give us to see that our old man has been crucified, dead, and buried, and put away. But Paul says, Paul's conclusion from that is, therefore, verse 12, do not let sin reign. In other words, Paul says, yes, we should trust, but that should lead us then to try. In fact, I can imagine something of a circle here, right? That Paul sees the Christian life as this circle of trying, perhaps failing, and going back in prayer to trusting, calling out to God for help, for his assistance, for power, and then trying. But my friends, to do as Mr. Trumbull suggests here, which is, in, in, and again, you, you find this, this error in a, in a large variety of different Christian uh, 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 denominations, especially though it seems in the assemblies of God, that people are looking for some kind of silver key, as it were. That I, why, if I just pray this prayer, or if I just have this particular experience, why, 
I'll, I'll just be vaulted without any effort of my own out of this life where I constantly have to struggle against sin, and I'll be brought to this place where I can just live the victorious Christian life, and I can be done with this constant struggle and fight against sin. But my friends, Paul, Paul does not teach that. Paul does not teach that. In fact, I can say to you that there is no silver key in the life of sanctification. Or I guess I could say that if there is a silver key, it's this teaching that we have before us in the, in the, in the New Testament today. That God has brought in our life, the moment we were saved, this irreversible break in our relationship with sin. And now Paul calls us to live that out. This is the position from which we fight. We fight as those who have had this irreversible divorce and break with sin. And it's from that position, from that power, that we fight against sin. And it's a disaster. It's a disaster to think that if we just trust that God will somehow do it for us. No, my friends. Jesus said, strive to enter in. Remember the word there is agonize to enter in. And we saw it in Psalm 119, didn't we? That there is this careful balance. Yes, we pray. Yes, we trust. But we must also try. And our trying leads us to grow weary. We grow tired. We lose the battle sometimes. So we go back to prayer. And our prayer brings us strength to try again. And back to prayer again. And back to trying again. And my friends, there is no deliverance from that life of struggle and fight against sin until that day when we come to our last, when we breathe our last, or when Christ comes on the clouds of heaven to take his children home. There is no deliverance from that life. And any Christian teacher who tells you that you can get out of that life of struggle and into a life of victory is not telling you the truth according to Scripture. And I take my stand on Romans 6, verse 12. That, to me, is Paul giving us this balance. Yes, we should trust. Therefore, do not let sin reign. That means Monday morning when you wake up, my friends, you have to take up the struggle against sin all over again. And Tuesday morning. And Wednesday morning. But, my friends, I ask that you do it with this understanding that Paul gives us in Romans 6. Verse 11, I told you I take my stand on Romans 12. Let me take my stand on Romans 6, verse 11, too. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin. Dead to sin. So there's the reality, and there's our experience. The reality, we are dead to sin. Our experience is something else. But we fight from the position of victory. I've come to my last point here, sin forgiven. My friends, we can, we can read a text like this. We can read the teaching of our catechism. And we can find that where the catechism meant to encourage us, we can even be a little discouraged. Because when we look at our life, we can see that even though Paul is saying that we've had this divorce with sin, that in so many areas of our life, we know that that's not the case. That we're kind of like Eve standing before the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And we talk to Satan. But wait a minute, Paul says we are dead to sin. And yet we find that in so many areas of our life, we talk to sin. We entertain sin. 
Sometimes we let sin in the door. We pull out a chair for it. We let him in the house. Paul says we're dead to sin. There's a divorce that's happened between you and sin. But in the experience of our life, that's not always the case. And I read something, my friends, that so touched me this week. I want to share that with you. And let this be an encouragement to you. Sin forgiven. I believe this was uh, Philip Schaff, the great church historian. Sin forgiven is hated. Sin unforgiven is cherished. That's the question I want to ask you tonight, dear believer. In your struggle against sin, do you hate it? Do you hate it? Do you hate it with all your heart and soul? Are you seeking to put it to death? Because I believe what Paul would have us to say here, or would have us to understand, is that forgiven sins, sins that have been forgiven, are hated. Yes, they prop up in our life again. Yes, they show up at the most, at the most terrible times. And we hate it. But my friends, that very hatred, that, that revulsion that we have against our sin is a sign, a mark that it is forgiven. Now, sin, unforgiven, is cherished. And that I need to preach also this evening, my friends, that where we have a sin that we protect, we cherish it, we rationalize it. And again, I'm talking about things that Scripture clearly condemns here. I know there's always questionable things here and there. But I'm talking about things that are clearly known to be sins. That's a sign that we've not been forgiven. That that sin stands on our record. And the guilt of it is still on our record. And we have to satisfy God's justice for that sin. That will not go well for anyone, my friends. You can't satisfy for even one sin. Then we have to go back to the lessons we had in the previous weeks about how the curse is removed. But I want to press that upon you because I think that if you're a believer this, this, this evening, that you have to say, yes, I have sin in my life. Yes, I don't see that complete divorce between sin and myself that I would love to see. But I hate my sin. I hate it. And I'm fighting against it every day. And I'll never give up in that fight. Well, my friends, sin forgiven is hated. And my prayer, my friends, is that as we, as we continue that fight against sin, that we would go back to the cross and that we would stand before the cross of Christ and that we would confess that reality, that our guilt has been removed by the death of Christ. And in, in the power of that, that we go forward again to face sin. And when we fail, my friends, we are not to despair of God's mercy. That's what the Lord's Supper form tells us. We are not to despair of God's mercy but we are to return to that cross. I put that quote on the very end. I love that quote from Thomas Boston. This is the Christian life, he says. The daily traveling betwixt their own emptiness and the fullness that is in Jesus Christ. Is that your life, my friends? Is that your life? A daily traveling between my emptiness, my sin, and the fullness that is in Christ. That's the life of faith. That's the life of faith. And that's a happy life. May God give us that experience in our life. And may we find strength and power in the teaching that Paul gives us. Let us pray.
Lord, we come before you this evening confessing, Lord, that we believe what your scripture, what your word gives us. That our relationship with sin has been irreversibly broken and that we have died to sin. But Lord, we confess also in our life that our daily experience teaches us that we often dally with sin, that we often speak to it. We often give it a place at our table. Lord, we hate it. We repent of it. We are ashamed of it. And we pray earnestly, Lord, that you would give us strength and power to put that sin to death and to live out of this glorious reality that we are dead to sin. We never want to hear from it again, Lord. And we long for that day when what has been made reality in our life in terms of our position, that one day it will be made reality perfectly. And that it will not just be our position, but that it will also be our experience. That sin has been completely eliminated and erased from our life. And we will live in uninterrupted joy with all your people and in the union of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit forever and forever. Lord, please bless us and keep us then. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn in the blue hymnal to number 242. 242. The 119th Psalm. And we'll sing the four verses of 242. Lord, thy word to me remember. Thou hast made me hope in thee. This my comfort in affliction. Thy word has quickened me. And what follows then in the four verses of 242 in the blue hymnal.
blessing of the Lord and go in peace. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.